What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess, and today on the show we've got Julian Marshall. You have to be willing to reinvent yourself as you go. And, you know, things that worked in the past may not work in the future, and you've got to be flexible. Um, you know, and I was traditionally a very inflexible person. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Julian Marshall. Julian, thanks for being on the show. That's fine. <laughs> Good. So uh, Julian is a filmmaker and a creative, and we're excited to talk about the things you've been up to in the last few years. Um, to start with, uh, can we talk about Obey the Giant? Tell us what that project is and how that came about. Sure. So, <clears throat> so um, I went to Rhode Island School of Design. And um, after my freshman year, I worked for Shepard Ferry, um, assistant editing on the Obey documentary. And, you know, fast forward to my, uh, the summer before my senior year, um, you know, I studied film at RISD and we had to do a thesis film. And, you know, I really felt like Shep's story would fit really well into a narrative. Um, You know, so... It was definitely a big stretch, but I reached out to Shep and his, his wife to see if they would let me do my thesis film about Shepard's time at RISD. Um, and they were really supportive and all about it. Um, you know, and, and Shep's story, um, there, there are a lot of people who have, who have pride for Shep's story in the Providence and New England area. So, you know, a lot of people stepped behind me to help me make it. Very cool. Um, and we'll put links to it. Uh, if anybody's watching this on YouTube or somewhere else, if you come to ideationcollective.com and come to Julian's page, we'll have all the links and stuff for everything we talk about in the interview today. Um, but do you want to talk about the workup and how long it took to wrote, to write, and then to schedule and then to shoot? Sure. So we made it in about an eight-month period. Um, so, you know, it started out with me <clears throat> hiring the editor that I had worked for when I was working uh, with Shepard, um, who was also a screenwriter. Uh, and we wrote the script, I think it was about 25 pages. Um, 
and you know, from there I went to raise funds and there were a few people kind of in the RISD family who were interested in seeing, seeing that film get made. Um, so they kind of got behind me to give me the funds to start. Um, so I had also, uh, a year prior, um, worked for Wes Anderson on Moonrise Kingdom and I ended up pulling a lot of the crew from that film um, who, you know, because I shot in the middle of winter in New England, uh, you know, had the time to help me out and the resources to help me out because uh, no one wants to shoot a production in the middle of a New England winter. Um, but so we, uh, we got a 2,800 square foot warehouse and built a set for it. Um, and, you know, it was really just a, a fantastic RISD collaboration, um, where, you know, you've got illustrators working, you've got, you know, industrial designers working, um, you know, all in the same space for the same goal, um, you know, to tell the story of a RISD student, something that, you know, we all, um, you know, something we, we could all empathize with, um, you know, dealing with themes of, of attention and how to deal with attention. Um, yeah. And it had a great skateboard ramp in it. That too. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a life dream that, uh, that that came along was building a, a perfect four foot tall by thirty foot long mini ramp uh, in our in our warehouse and, and having that for about eight months. So, how much research did it take to go back and know like how to get the stickers right and how to, um, you know, how he was making them and you know the the billboard and all that. So, I mean, the great thing was that, that there were a few people who were still in Providence that were either friends of Shepard or, um, you know, knew his story from the time he was there back in the 90s. Um, so there were kind of two people who really helped me out. One was his friend, Al Reed, who owns um, a local pizza place called Nice Slice. Uh, and the other was one of his teachers, Fred Lynch, and they were kind of the main people that helped me to kind of rebuild the story and, you know, get period accuracy, get the music right, um, all that. That's great. Um, so for, you know, with that becoming like a, a, you know, pretty significant production, um, what kind of tips would you have or, or what did you discover that maybe someone who hasn't had to run that themselves wouldn't naturally know? What surprised you? Probably the biggest surprise was the second you try to do something of, of a large scale, um, the cost of it ends up amplifying and amplifying and amplifying. So, you know, it, it's good to start with very uh, economic material, very thin material. Um, like now going into, um, you know, feature film development and looking at what I'm going to do as my first feature, I'm now looking for projects that are very, very small in scope so that you can spend as much time as possible with your actors. And, uh, you know, it's like you look at a film like, like Whiplash, you know, you can tell that they wrote that to be very thin so that Damien could spend a lot of time with his actors, which is, you know, really the most important thing rather than, shooting out a ton of locations and having to do big company moves and losing all that time, you know? You know, I remember when you were building that campaign uh, for the editing dollars and these kind of things, you know, with a lot of our viewers being innovators or entrepreneurs or creatives, dollars is certainly an issue almost all the time, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the Kickstarter campaign and the success you had there? Yeah, so 
When I when we first started um, developing the film, writing the script, I ran a Kickstarter um, that didn't gain any traction. Um, you know, because who's going to believe a 21 or 20 year old kid saying he's making a film about Shepard Fairey? Because um, I was 21 at the time. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, I nixed the Kickstarter before it kind of like failed and decided to, you know, that once I could cut a trailer for the thing that people would, would get behind me. So, you know, after we got the film in the can, um, I cut a trailer and, uh, you know, I really changed up my strategy big time for the next Kickstarter. Like so much of what it takes for it to be successful is work that you do before you launch it, you know, the preparation for it. And then it kind of just goes on its own. And it's it's the kind of thing where you end up making the most money at the beginning and the end of it. Um, you know, if I remember correctly, we raised 60, I think 60 grand or 62,000 in three days or something like that. Um, and tell everybody how but, much you're asking for. You know, uh, I think it's 35,000 and we ultimately raised 65. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, having people in your corner that will also push it. Social media is a big aspect. Um, you know, getting on the right blogs, knowing your audience is definitely important. Um, and shooting high in terms of the blogs is important, you know, rather than to try to shoot for like every single little niche blog, if you can get it on the larger ones, it ends up kind of trickling down. So it's just kind of about focusing your resources on, on the key influencers that will kind of influence everyone else. Uh, and, you know, all this stuff comes down to, to maybe two things, you know, one, your, your story and that you believe in it. And two, that, um, you know, that it's something people are going to want to get engaged with and, and, you know, telling people that they can be a part of this thing, which is a very, you know, it's, it's something that's very um, kind of singular to this new generation of, of financing is that it's no longer something that happens behind closed doors. You know, everyone's voice matters. You know, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. We, um, you know, so many people today are thinking about at what stage of a process might crowdfunding make sense if they're trying to come build something new. And, um, you know, I was bragging about you the other day and uh, the creativity you had on your $10,000 prize for, uh, do you want to talk about that for a second, where you came up with that idea and how it worked? Yeah. Um, so there were two kind of higher level um, rewards on Kickstarter. One, I think I put it 5,000 and that was that my producer and I would fly out to your house and screen the film for you and hang out and talk about it. Um, and the 10,000 one, I need to kind of remember, um, well, you know, both of them were, you know, executive producer credits. Um, you know, they, they all had, um, you know, a, a variety of Shepard's work included. Shep, Shep, uh, donated a couple of prints for me, uh, to, 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 to me for the Kickstarter. Um, you know, in fact, I kind of need to like look it up to see what everything was, but you know, ultimately out of it, what was interesting was I, you know, there were, there were two now really good friends of mine who gave 10, 10 grand to the, to the campaign. Um, and I mean, you, you know, it's interesting that, that someone who you didn't know beforehand can, can become a really good friend of yours by, by engaging in it. You know, and it really has nothing to do with the fact that they gave us money. They were just really good people. You know, that's interesting. It is interesting that that can start a friendship. 
But I, I mean, pat on the back for you of like thinking up of how can you let someone else put their name on it? You know, I think so many people were, you know, if you've got the drive to be a creative, if you've got the drive to be some kind of innovator, entrepreneur, um, I think there's a lot of temptation to maybe for self-focus sometimes. And yet... Well, that's like the, the important thing is that film is a team sport and, you know, it takes you a while to, to learn that and to learn how to kind of manage your ego because it's easy to let that, uh, you know, get out of control. <laughs> um, but realizing that, you know, you're way more powerful in, in a group and that, you know, your story is more important than you are. You know, doing anything you can to make that story happen. Yeah, well, you know, we so at Child Rescue, our charity, uh, we're working on a crowdfunding campaign right now for Indiegogo, and we took a name, you know, we took a page out of your playbook, and one our undercover rescue mission, our guys are going to do in Central America, we're having a big prize where people get to name the mission as the you know yeah, the well. top level kind of thing, and um, you know, you look at how many universities have been built around this country by letting somebody put a name on it, you know, put their plaque on the university building. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, recognizing that people want the, a legacy. People want to be a part of something, you know, be able to look up, look themselves up on IMDB and see they're yeah. an executive producer on Obey the Giant, right? Um, yeah. So uh, you mentioned Wes Anderson. Uh, obviously, that's a name that gets a lot of attention for anybody who likes film. Um, what was that experience like being in the being in the camera crew there? So um, that was like very fortuitous. I, um, I had a directing teacher who was one of my, one of my favorite teachers at RISD who she went to Harvard with Darren Aronofsky um, and a couple of people who worked on uh, a few of his films. And uh, she, she knew the to be producer of Moonrise um, and heard that they were coming to town to make the film and connected me with them kind of from, from day one uh, to, to go and help on the production. So <clears throat> I started out as an art department intern, um, which was, you know, it, it was fantastic. You look at uh, Adam Stockhausen and Jerry Sullivan and, you know, that their team won the Oscar for production design uh, on, on Grand Budapest, you know, it's really special people. I mean, it's, it's especially working with people who are both amazing at what they do and very caring, you know, again, back to that like team sport thing and kind of the idea that, uh, you know, when it comes to creativity, you know, anyone can have good ideas. Um, but so I, you know, I started out in the art department and, uh, then when Bob Yeoman, the DP arrived, um, the, the producer um, of the film, you know, decided that, uh, I guess it was, it was him and Jerry uh, decided I would be a good fit for, for camera department. Uh, cause, you know, I grew up as a cinematographer and, um, you know, so what I was really lucky, I was really lucky that the production was really small and very family-like. And so I got to go on uh, most of the test shoots, which were just, you know, Wes, Bob Young in the DP, and Nate EAD, um, you know, which is, like, really amazing to be able to hang out with them and, you know, learn from them. Um, you know, I was lucky that before the AC showed up, I was the only person who could load uh, the A-minima the a 16 mil cameras. Um, we were shooting on, like, A-minimas and X-terras, but... 
uh, you know, Bob hadn't had to load a 16 mil camera in God knows how long. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of how that came about. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a really fantastic production and kind of Wes's big comeback, you know, um, we all kind of had the sense that we were making something, you know, intimate and special. Um, and you had a crew that really wanted to be there, you know, for the most part when, you know, when you're not dragging camera cars through mud in the rain, but, uh, you know, that's another thing. Yeah. Well, you look at, um, a, I mean, for anybody with an art background, those West movies are so fun, but, uh, also like such great talent in front of the camera, you know, Mm-hmm. Such great actors. Um, what uh, what lessons would you have for other people who haven't been a part of, you know, production of that scale or things like that? Thinking about, um, you know, people who people who want to make something. Any inspiration from seeing Wes Anderson do it in front of you that uh, you think, you know, people. Um, I mean, the guy's <clears throat> not scared of originality, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, what you learn from someone like that is that everyone has a different process and you learn a lot about tone of films. Like Wes is very controlling of everything within the frame. You know, his compositions are very, very symmetrical. Um, you know, his, his actors are all, you know, he, he directs his actors to kind of all exist in one world performance wise. Uh, everything is very tailored. Uh, which makes a very particular type of film. You know, you contrast that with someone like Clint Eastwood, who has, you know, a very sensitive, very light touch on things. You know, he really lets, he doesn't rehearse. He lets his actors go and, um, you know, does very limited takes. And, um, you know, that's probably what I, what I learned most is how to tailor your process to the type of film you want to make and the way that you want your film to feel. Reaching back a little farther, the way we met, uh, you know, through Vimeo with the, the snowboarding and the action sports stuff you've done, um, Torstine and some of the other, other big names you've been able to work with. Can you talk about um, kind of the, the difference, the mindset, if somebody's going to make that action sports world kind of video? Um, well, for starters, why don't you tell us some of, the, <clears throat> some of the bigger names in action sports you've been able to film with? Sure. Um... You know, I um, filmed with, with Torstein Horgmo for a couple of years um, and got to know a lot of the Norwegian pro snowboarders through him. Um, I also, let's see, who, who else? So I filmed with a lot of different people, whether it be Torstein, Dan Breezy, uh, some of the forum guys like Austin Sweden, um, Let's see, uh, a bunch of bunch of the guys on the DC team, um, but you know the the cool thing about the Norwegian guys was like no matter what kind of uh, you know no matter who they were sponsored by or what teams they were on they all traveled together, um, so that was kind of a, a cool way to get to know those guys. Um, just the the Europeans in general, not even just the Norwegians. Uh, yeah. So, you know, coming from the the Canadian, the great white North being a snowboarder myself and always watching those videos growing up. Um, for anybody who wants to make those kind of videos, what, what kind of advice would you have for having them turn um, out right or getting them to, 
the level they could be? Well, you know, as opposed to the other stuff that I do, the snowboard stuff has been much more, much, much less of a team. So really often, you know, with snowboarding and skateboarding, it's just you and a camera most of the time. Um, you know, and so you've got to be happy carrying a 40-pound backpack while you ride. Um, which, you know, just the other day I pulled that out of my closet and picked it up and was like, oh my God, I rode with this thing for all those years. Um, you know, so it's good weight training, but, um, you know, there's certain things you've got to get good at, which is, you know, follow camming, uh, riding with someone, which is, you know, easier on skis, harder on a snowboard. Um, but you know, that's a very, otherwise, a lot of it comes down to, you know, creative vision on it. Like I, I never tried not to be too influenced by what other people were doing and just kind of, you know, shot what I want to see. I feel like, uh, you know, there, there's a trend within the snowboard industry um, to just follow what the crowd is doing and follow what the conventions are, you know. Can you still hear me, Jess? Yep. The camera's just freaking out a little. Okay. Uh, yeah, some, yeah, something's going on. Um, but, you know, it's like, so just like breaking up those conventions so that you can, you know, move forward and hopefully do something new. You know, when we were talking a minute ago, uh, before we got started here, um, we were talking about some of the people who have been influences on you lately. And um, can you talk a little bit about uh, creative management and maybe some of the books you've read or people you've met recently? Yeah. Um, so maybe about a year ago, I read Ed Catmull's book, um, Ed Catmull of Pixar. And, you know, he talks about how they've managed to, you know, the, how they've managed to kind of create hit after hit um, within their, uh, within, you know, by, by changing their culture. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to the fact that you can't, you know, change is inevitable and you can't fight it. Um, and you have to be willing to reinvent yourself as you go. And, you know, things that worked in the past may not work in the future and that you've got to be flexible. Um, you know, and I was traditionally a very inflexible person. Like I liked my process and that was it. And I wanted to just, you know, do that and recreate it. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many fantastic stories about how they've created an environment where people enjoy being creative, which ultimately fosters creativity. Um, you know, there's there's like the great story of uh, so they were um, they were making Toy Story two, and um, someone accidentally typed the command rm r f into the main terminal and. All of a sudden, you know, the, the way their systems work, it's like it's all proxied. So, um, you know, there's a file for Woody that people work on. And then, you know, Woody gets imported into a scene that has its own file. And so all of a sudden, you know, you've got Woody disappears from a scene. And then this person disappears from the scene and people start freaking out. And someone calls down to the machine room and says, pull the plug. Everything's getting erased, um, which that's what that, that command stands for. RM-R-F is like delete everything as fast as possible. Um, and they pull it and realize that I think they I think they had uh, deleted 95 or 96 percent of the film. Um, oh. And then this is the book they, Creativity. 
by Ed Catmull? Creativity, Creativity Inc., yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll put a link uh, to it here on your page. Yeah, and, and so, um, and then all of a sudden they realized their backup systems hadn't been working. So, it, you know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, there, there are kind of two ways to go. You can either go and like witch hunt to figure out who, who did this uh, and, and kill them and then, you know, say, well, shoot, what do we do now? Uh, or you can uh, try and solve the problem and, you know, try not to be punitive. And what they did was they, um, I think it was like a producer or someone high up had been given maternity leave and they had set up a terminal at her house for her to work from when she was at home. And what they realized was that her computer had been doing incremental backups of the entire film. So they were ran to her house, grabbed her computer, and only ended up losing a week of work out of, out of that. Um, but ultimately, it's because they respected their employees and respected, uh, you know, people having families and that that's what's most important. And that's what ultimately saved the day. You know, so it's like, you know, it'd be it'd be easy to say, you know, no maternity leave. You've got to work. You know, productivity has to stay high. But you never know when something is going to circle back around. And you know, it's like thinking really far forward with your decision making is interesting. Sure. Um, and uh, when you talk about that, it's interesting. This idea of leadership, right? Um, there's such a human tendency to want to go for blame. And uh, it almost like takes that level of maturity to skip straight to solving the problem, huh? Yeah. Um, uh, a few minutes ago, we were talking also about uh, a cinematographer that you felt like had had a big influence on you. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so let's see. I, I have um, a really good friend named Beverly Wood, who I think actually she just retired this month, but she... Um, was the EVP of a company called Deluxe and in the last year took over um, uh, one of their subsidiaries called eFilm. And sorry, one sec. And, uh, you know, what they do is they do the finishing on probably about half of the larger movies that you see. Um, finishing meaning color grading, uh, that, that final step to make a film look really, you know, uh, appropriate for whatever the story is. Um, so, you know, I got to know her pretty well hanging out in L.A., and she's had her hands in, in so many fantastic movies, and she's worked with the best of the best cinematographers. And um, I was out at, at Toronto International Film Festival hanging out with Bev. She invited me to one of Deluxe's parties, and, you know, Roger Deakins shows up, who, you know, anyone in the film industry who hears that name, even people outside of the film industry, you know, recognize his name, uh, know, you know, the caliber of the type of person you're talking about. He's, you know, of the five, if not, you know, three best living cinematographers right now. Um, you know, he did all the Coen Brothers films. You know, most recently he did Sicario, um, he did Skyfall, and, and someone who, you know, completely adopted digital cinematography, which there, there are so many people who are incredibly loyal to shooting on 35 millimeter film. But, you know, again, as I had said earlier, that willingness to accept change, um, 
you know, is, is very interesting. Uh, but anyway, anyway, so, you know, what's also very fascinating about him is that he has a very open source mentality. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who really, you know, guard their trade secrets and are afraid of people, you know, figuring out their secrets. But Roger Deakins, you know, really he shares everything. He's got a, a forum that anyone can post questions on and he takes the time to answer them. And, uh, you know, just the idea of, of improving cinematography across the board and, and that that's, you know, in your best interest as a DP to, to empower other people. Um, you know, and so I, I started talking to him and we ended up having, you know, one of the most nerdy conversations about cinematography for maybe an hour. And, you know, who, who the heck am I? You know, so it's, it's amazing when you meet people who are like that, you know, Wes Anderson's like that, Shepard Fairey's like that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's great to be around people who are just that, you know, they're, they're people. Yeah, it's like that generosity is a big magnet, huh? Yeah. Um, well, diving a bit more into like creative process, I know that obviously, uh, you know, successful, uh, successful at making commercials for people. Um, some of our friends in common, you've done that with some of the large Fortune 500 companies, stuff like that. Um, but a bit before we go into that, will you talk about creative process and script writing and some of those other things you're working on? You know, what's interesting about with with writing, uh, the most important thing in writing is uh, is rewriting. Um, and I think that's like the real skill set that makes a, a true writer is someone who wants to rewrite and wants to continue to improve things. And, you know, with anything in the, in the creative realm, you know, you know, this is kind of back to Pixar, you know, they, it's that, that understanding that, you know, that first treatment you write or whatever it is, that's just the starting point. You know, that is something that, sucks for for everyone you know whatever that starting point is and it's about you know being happy with failure and failing early so that you can improve your idea you know nothing starts out being fantastic you just have to be willing to do the work and the revisions to you know really improve it and you know it, it took a while for me to come to terms with that because you're you know you're really heavily motivated early on and you know you want success to come immediately or you want to, you know, get this thing done immediately. And, you know, knowing that you've got to slow down and uh, take the time to make something great and, you know, spend a ton of time alone in a room writing. Um, but, you know, that's probably the most important thing about, about the process of it. And then the other thing is, um, you know, having a circle of people that you really trust to give you feedback, uh, you know, and, and you trust them because they will be candid, that they will, you know, say things that might upset you, but, you know, are, uh, are honest. Uh, and I've had plenty of times where someone says something, you know, that upsets you because you've been working on something for a long time, but then you realize, you know, they're right. Um, you know, and it all comes down to listening and kind of removing your ego from the equation and just strengthening ideas. You know, it's like having your team of people that are just there to strengthen your ideas. That's great. Um, you know, we're we're obviously big book nerds on the show here. Um, any uh, any screenwriting books or like you know whether it's Rob McKee's story or Bob McKee's story. Anybody like? Do you like the Blake Snyder books? Any any books that stand out to you? Yeah. Um, 
Let me think. I tend to stay away from the screenwriting books. Um, there are a couple that, you know, are kind of like the standard books that you read and you've got to take them with a grain of salt sometimes, like Story by Robert McKee, where, you know, it's like what that book does is it says, you know, of the films that have been most successful, these are the similarities between their structure and the way they handle character and, and this and that. And those are the things you, you definitely need to learn because, you know, the structure is something that still works and it's worked for a long time. And it's something that in order to break the structure, you have to really understand the structure. You know, looking at, um, you know, Aaron Sorkin's script for the new Steve Jobs film, um, that completely breaks up, you know, traditional biopic structure. Uh, you know, he completely mastered traditional structure before he before he did that. Um, let me think. What other books? I'm like looking at my bookcase right now. Um, well, I no, think what, got, you, what you say really got, resonates. Oh, who are you? Gonna... I've got like better recommendations for like directing books. Mm, what's an maybe. example? Um, there's a great book called Directing Actors that, that probably got me over like the initial learning curve of, of learning how to direct and learning how to work with actors and think on your feet. Um, let's see what else. There, there's a book called, maybe, maybe the first and most important book I read, uh, that's, it's actually about editing. It's called In the Blink of an Eye hmm. um, by Walter Murch, who is a, a really famous but very like cherished film editor um you know he uh did one of the first uh one, one of the uh, he did the first digitally edited film to win an oscar that was the english patient hmm. um you know he did apocalypse now godfather three and, and a lot of stuff but uh you know it really gets into some of the very interesting theories behind editing and like when to place a cut and like what, what a cut psychologically is. Like for instance, if you were to, uh, you know, something interesting, people tend to blink at punctuation. And if you can successfully place a cut where everyone in the audience is going to blink, then the film will seem like a stream of consciousness and have no cuts. You know, it's stuff like that, that, that that's fascinating. Huh, that sounds great. We'll put a link to it here on the, on the site. Um, yeah. You know, you think about um, film and its ability to create an emotional response. And so many, so many entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs, people trying to get a cause out there. Um, there's more and more content in the world these days. And, uh, you know, there's proliferation of blogs like crazy. Um, and it does seem like more and more people are realizing, Hey, video film, this is where you've got the highest probability of creating that emotional response. Um, when you're taking on clients, you know, you're making these commercials for whether it's a big Fortune 500 company or, or the ones you've done for the startup apps, what kind of advice do you have for your clients on, hey, you could blow your budget on a lot of things, but here's what I recommend, you know, here's what I recommend to make this commercial actually create the response you want or what kind of approaches uh, do you bring to it? Well, I, I think um, probably the most... Uh, this is kind of a little more indirect way of answering the question. Maybe the biggest like quote that's influenced the way that I go about doing commercials, or at least the way that I pitch them, is that people don't care about what you do; they care about why you do it. Hmm. Um, you know, the idea that you know, say you're making an app, people, you know, 
talking about features will only get you so far, but talking about how it's going to change your, you know, your lifestyle and how, you know, it's like with, with Apple computers, you know, it started out, you know, think different, you know, it's like the computer, this computer says something about me, you know, um, which ultimately, you know, now that they have, you know, a much larger part of the uh, market share, it, it's kind of like flipped a little bit, but um, you know, in, in its infancy, that was very, very interesting, you know, lifestyle marketing. Um, and, and, you know, it's like with, with, with anything and anyone, when you're really, really close to whatever you're doing, it's hard to be objective. You know, that goes for me and my projects. But, you know, when you've been sitting in an office working on a project for years, uh, you know, years and years, it's hard to become, you know, it's hard to then remove yourself and be objective about, you know, how do I want to influence someone's life with this thing rather than all the features you've been, like, micromanaging throughout it. And, you know, so... I think the most important thing about the process is that everyone has to listen to each other. Um, you know, which is probably the biggest thing I've learned is, is that, um, you know, even if you think someone's wrong, you've got to listen to them because um, everyone has their own perspective. Well, you talk about that idea of, of helping people kind of like see how it impacts their life. I remember when you had me over to your place in LA and you were editing that uh, commercial for the human app. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like that's an example of what you're talking about. I mean, we'll put a link to it here on the page. But um, was that was that idea with the party and showing it? Was that something you brought to the table, or is that something they brought to the table but you helped guide? How did that process work? Um, so that was something I I had pitched, and you know, again, back to that idea of people don't care about what you do; they care about why you do it. Um, you know, that app is about. Um, it's, it's about really, it's about making it easier to meet people and making social interaction easier through technology. And, and ultimately it's about, you know, at least to me, it's about technology disappearing. The idea that you make a piece of technology that allows the technology to, to disappear and allow people to better engage. Um, you know, so I figured it would be, rather than to make an app that says, or sorry, to make a video that says that like this app does this and this and this and this, it's, it's like, this is how it's going to change your life. And, you know, so that was my, my focus in terms of the creative best spot. Yeah. What about, um, like when you're working on Intel projects in New York or stuff like that, what, what did you do with your approach there? Um, that, that particular, so, you know, it's different from, from spot to spot. Um, you know, so I just, uh, you know, sometimes you, you know, you've got the traditional ad agency path where, um, you know, a client hires an ad agency and they build creative and then the creative is done and then sent to a production company and the production company executes on it. Um, like I just did a Verizon commercial where that was the, the kind of the path. Um, there was maybe one spot uh, in that range of Intel spots that was kind of strictly my, my creative. Um, but uh, so, so yeah, that one's, a, you know, totally different. Sometimes you end up being a creative director uh, where they're coming to you and saying, you know, what would you do with this? Um, or sometimes they've spent, you know, months in a dark room, uh, you know, with statistics and analytics and figured out who, who their people are and, you know, all that. And you're just there to uh, make it happen. Okay. So 
thinking about commercials in general and, and wh- whether it's, you know, traditional television commercial, whether it's web video, um, so many people are trying to get an idea to spread. Um, what are some of the elements that you would tell people who are maybe uh, approaching video or newer, newer to film of, hey, we need to get our idea to spread? What kind of principles would you tell them as they investigate that process? You can never like save, you know, I, I feel like it's counterproductive for your initial goal to be like, I want to make something that will go viral. There are tons of people that have, have come to me saying like, we want to make a viral video. And I think that's, you know, kind of a backwards way of thinking uh, rather than saying, you know, I want to make something that's going to influence people or I want to make something that this person is going to want to share with their friends. Um, you know, what I'm saying is that it's like the stock market. You never know anything can happen. Um, you know, you can definitely put yourself in, in the best position to, to enable that. Like there are certain formats that, that make that easier. Um, you know, unfortunately, the shorter your content, the more likely it is to get shared and the faster it is to, to share it. Um, you know, the faster it can be viewed by more people just simply in terms of time. Um, you know, they're kind of, at least in terms of like commercials and viral content, I feel like they're, they're kind of two main genres that put you in that space. One is comedy. The other is suspense. Um, you know, either where, you know, it's just making you laugh and, you know, which is kind of maybe the hardest thing to do, but also the easiest way to influence people. Um, and then there's suspense where, you know, you, you set up a circumstance where people are on the edge of their seat, like what is going to happen in that, you know, um, you know, there are other things that, that you can do to put yourself in the best position, which, you know, it's doing like big ad buys, um, you know, and there, there are certain ways to do that on a budget. Like I've got a buddy who's got a company called Viral, V-I-R-O-O-L, and they, um, they help promote anything online um and it's not through kind of like the traditional ad spend model that's kind of like unapproachable for for kind of people on the democratized side of the spectrum um you know so it's like there there are ways of doing kind of like micro budget ad spends you just have to know kind of who your audience is for it in order to be uh, efficient with it when you think about uh, certain of the things that you're working on and um, things you have worked on, you know, so often um, when people are trying to get the message out about, you know, either the business they started or the creative work they've done or these kind of things, um, there is a desire to want to get it to be something that the tastemakers pick up, that the people who can really be that amplifier pick up. Um, What's been your process or, or what concepts do you have in the idea of like inventing cool? What kind of thoughts do you have of like making sure that something is uh, or, or researching to pick up on the clues of what's about to be cool or things like this? Well, kind of, I guess that's the key of it is you don't want to do what's cool now. You want to do what's going to be cool tomorrow. I mean, I feel like the best thing you can do as a, as a filmmaker and the most honest thing to do is to say, you know, I'm going to make something that I want to see. You know, that's what I try to do as much as possible is, you know, it, it's like, hopefully what I find cool, someone else will find cool. Uh, you know, it's like that's the only case with 
my Obey film was that I just, I literally just made something that I wanted to see. You know, there was nothing like this and I wanted to, I wanted to see it. Um, you know, so I guess that's maybe my best, best answer. Uh, you know, cool comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Yeah. Are you like, are you a guy who's, uh, hunting the internet. I mean, being in New York, just walking down the streets, you're going to see a bunch of it, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, New York puts you ground, ground zero with, I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to being, you know, very self-motivated, um, you know, and doing your own thing. And then hopefully that catches on. And there are a lot of people who are very, you know, individualistic here and kind of expressing themselves and, I think that's how trends are created, you know, is, is when you start kind of to forget and not care about what other people think about you and you just do your thing. And we had the, uh, we had the manager for Imagine Dragons on the show and she was mm -hmm. talking about like, you know, she's got an up and coming band called Vaughn Gray that was also on the show. And she's talking about how they have all these discussions about creating something that's iconic, something that's something that is going to be lasting, that's going to last the test of time is, mm -hmm. you know, it's never me too content. It's never me too stuff. It's, there's like this, you know, kind of disregard for, for what everyone else is doing and a little bit of like tapping into that honesty, that originality kind of thing. Um, yeah. Makes me think about, you know, venture capitalists so often talk about um, a key team that they like to support is, you know, some young hungry guys who are solving their own problem, you know, mm -hmm. because they're, they, they have such a good test on, is this working or not? W like, would I buy it? Right. When yeah. You can, exactly. When you can close that loop of like, when the filmmaker's saying like, is this what I want to watch at, you know, creating for themselves, they have such a high ability to measure, like, is it working? Right. Yeah. Um, well, as you look at creative pursuits that are on the horizon for you, what kind of things are you working on these days? Um, there's some stuff I can be specific about. about. Some, I, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I could talk more about kind of like where I'm headed or where yeah. I hope I'm headed. Sure. Um, you know, things are changing so quickly. But, you know, in, in the next year, I'm hoping that I can make my, my first feature. Um, and it's something that just takes so long, uh, you know, and you've got to be very patient. Um, it's taken me a while to kind of learn that, but, you know, I've got one feature that I've been developing for about a year and a half with someone. And then there are two new features I just put in development and, um, my business partner and I are going after, um, some existing scripts, uh, trying to option some scripts and, and put together kind of a slate of projects that are all, very different and a good range and, and then figure out kind of a strategy for what to make when. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because everything has completely flipped. I mean, even from when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago, you know, it's like three and a half, less than three and a half years ago. Um, you know, when I was, you know, maybe when I was just starting college, the, that was maybe the last year of when, the old model of filmmaking still worked. Um, the, the old distribution model, um, you know, it was maybe in like, you know, this maybe after, right after I graduated high school, maybe when I was in the first year of college was when everything was screwed, um, which was when like 
the the DVD crash coincided with the two years two year writer strike that started in 07. And it was this period where um, there was, you know, so D- DVDs accounted for you know more than half of the the profit of the film industry. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in about a year or two's time, I think that cut in half probably. Um, and at that moment, there was a big writer strike, so there was no new material coming into the system, and no one was making money on what was going out of it. Um, and it kind of created reality TV, actually. Um, but you know, that was also this point where crowdsourcing popped up, and you know, some of the new distribution models. And you got Netflix coming around, and you know, we're we're hitting this point where you look at companies like. Red Bull, who's in music and Netflix in films. And, you know, it's the companies that don't have to make money selling individual units that are going to be the, the kind of future viability of the industry. Um, and, you know, it's like you look at, at, at Netflix, which is kind of interesting, where, um, you know, it's a small screen format, which is something that, you know, I'm not terribly thrilled about. Because I, uh, you know, I love the theatrical experience and a large format experience, just like from a psychological standpoint. Um, but, you know, so they've recently made Beasts of No, or they've recently um, distributed Beasts of No Nation, Kerry Fukunaga's new film, um, and they, they. They basically they, they put it out in theaters simultaneously as, as it was released on Netflix. And, um, you know, what's interesting about Netflix is that they didn't have to make a single dollar off of theatrical distribution mm. of the film for it to be viable. Uh, whereas pretty much every other company, that's where they make, you know, the first chunk of their money back and get their exposure. Um, but Netflix, all they have to do is sell subscriptions and distribute content. Um, yeah. You know, so it it allows them to buy different types of content that may not be as successful in theaters. You know, there are a lot of studios that passed on Beasts of No Nation just because of it being a child soldier story and how, you know, aggressive that material can be. Um, you know, and then you look at Red Bull, who is coming to music and they don't have to sell records to make money. You know, they like, um, you know, it's interesting talking to my buddies who work there, you know. Red Bull doesn't promote music to sell cans. They sell cans to promote music. And all they have to do is build their brand off of this stuff. And allows them, it allows them to make smarter decisions and decisions that have a lot more creative integrity than um, you know, a lot of the record labels that have to be so, um, you know, they're so mind bent on hits and that one track you know, and, and you know, what's also crazy about that is that you know, for every hit you hear, you know, in pop culture, probably about a million dollars went into making that what it was. It's just a very inefficient system. Um, you know, you see Skrillex and those different people who are doing stuff with Red Bull, and it is it's inventing the future, isn't it? Yeah, we're getting close to the end of our hour here. A couple of questions we'd like to ask all our guests. Uh, one of them. When you think about earlier in your life, is there anybody that set an example for you on how to treat people that you try to emulate? Yeah, my mom. Absolutely. Really? What's an Uh, example? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think that there's just, there's, she has 
the, you know, I'm biased because she's my mom, but she has the most integrity of, of anyone ever met. Um, you know, I can't get into too many of the specifics, but they're, you know, business decisions she, she's made, um, you know, that were purely on grounds of integrity, you know, knowing when to walk away from something because, you know, it's just not in line with what you believe in, even though, you know, it may have huge financial benefits, you know, and, and just sticking to, you know, the fact that it, it's, it's really the only thing that you can take with you at the end of, of, of your life is like, you know, who you influence and what your footprint was and, uh, you know, focusing on, you know, it's, it's easy to be a bad person. It's easy to move forward, at least in the short term, being a bad person, but there's really no longevity to that. And it'll catch up with you eventually, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I'm most focused on like, how do you positively impact the people around you and do well? That's great. Uh, another question, um, is, uh, you know, we've talked about promoting things. We've talked about, um, getting the word out and stuff. And, uh, so specifically with child rescue association, what, what advice would you have for us about how to get the word out, how to get more people involved in, in helping to rescue kids? Uh, you know, I think it, it comes down to empathy. If you can make someone, you can put someone in a position to, you know, if you, if you ask them the question, you know, how would you feel if your kid was abducted, you know, and, and you can really, you can get them to, to really imagine that that's how you empower someone to make a difference. You know, first you've got to, you know, wake them up to the fact that this stuff happens and that it's very real and that it can, ha you know, it can happen to anyone. Um, you know, and then, you know, they have to really feel for the people you know, that the, this stuff is happening to, if they don't honestly feel for them and feel that, you know, you know, they're human beings just like themselves, then, uh, you know, it's like, that's, that's what you've got to do. Everyone, you know, you've, you've got to influence people to care about other people. You think about the number of times in this conversation that words like patience have come up and it's taken me time to learn things and stuff. Um, what kind of ideas do you have or advice do you have for people about being willing to pay the price about like continuing to work on stuff, even when you don't feel like it and that just tenacity and adaptability? I mean, it's the kind of thing where some people, you know, and it's like, you know, first I want to kind of like define success. There's kind of success as defined internally and externally. You know, I kind of define success internally. I've got my own goals and things that I want to do. Um, you know, I care less about how other people define it, but, um, you know, it's, it's something where, you know, initially I, I think it's just, it's just human to want to get that immediately. And, uh, it very, very, very rarely happens immediately. And there are plenty of people and plenty of examples of people where they had to work their entire life to get where they are. And that's normal. You know, we're just in a moment in history where people's success is so public that there's a pressure to be successful early, you know, especially with, you know, the tech industry and how you can make an app overnight and be a millionaire, you know, but, um, you know, it's normal for that stuff to take a lifetime. And, 
you know, working with that in mind and laying those bricks. And, you know, if it happens earlier, then you set yourself up to be happy versus trying to get this tomorrow and being very disappointed when it doesn't happen. Um, you know, I'm just speaking from experience and kind of what my own state of mind was just a few years ago. Reminds me of a video that my brother and I sent to each other sometimes for a pick me up. It's about like mm -hmm. Leonardo da Vinci and like, you know, for the decade in his thirties, how he didn't do anything that anybody knows him for, but that's what it took to get to the level yeah. where everybody knew him for all those years. I'll we'll find, try and find the link to it, put it on the page here. But, um, cool. That's a, it's such a good message, right? Um, because there is this external pressure and yet, um, it doesn't always increase quality of life to be giving into that external pressure. Does it? Yeah. Well, appreciate the time you've given us today and thanks for being on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.